Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, Governor Andrew Cuomo announces stricter COVID guidelines as infections continue climbing across New York City. Protesters target Amazon as the holiday shopping season gets underway. And Upper West Side residents come out in support of about 300 homeless men who have lived in the Lucerne Hotel since earlier this summer. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest news at independent.org. In the headlines today, more than 260,000 Americans are now confirmed to have died in the COVID-19 pandemic. With infection rates climbing both in New York City and state and sure to rise further after the holiday weekend, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced Monday that he was imposing stricter guidelines. Uh, we are now worried about overwhelming the hospital system. And if those numbers continue to increase, which we expect they will, you will see serious stress on the hospital system. We'll, we'll hear later in the show from a nurse at a Brooklyn safety net hospital that is slated to be closed at the end of this month under a plan hatched three years ago by Governor Cuomo. In other news, 20,000 Amazon workers have been infected since the pandemic began in March, but the online retail giant isn't slowing down as it expects its biggest holiday season ever as more people shop from home. On Friday, there were protests against Amazon in a dozen countries and here in New York as well. The Congress of Essential Workers and the Stop Shopping Church Choir rallied Friday outside the midtown mansion of Jeff Bezos, Amazon CEO, and the world's wealthiest man with an estimated net worth of $200 billion. This is Reverend Billy Talon, pastor of the Church of Stop Shopping. We'll have more on demands for Amazon to do right by its workers in the first segment after the break. On on Sunday, supporters of a group of homeless men who have been staying at the Hotel Lucerne on the Upper West Side came out to show their support. Mayor Bill de Blasio recently won a court ruling that would allow him to move the men out of the upscale neighborhood. Here is one of the Lucerne residents speaking with the Independent. We came here uh, as it was for COVID reasons, you know, to prevent the spread of COVID. Within the congregate shelters, that's what, you know, that's what was happening. So, so being here is, is safe for us, you know. Um, for me, it's been a really positive experience. We'll be back. Uh, we'll be back with our first guest after this short break. We'll talk some more about the Amazon juggernaut and uh, and what uh, labor and community groups are doing to oppose it and insist it uh, treat its workers more justly.
That was Nostalgia by the Ethiopiques. You're listening to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website, now celebrating its 20th anniversary year. You can find all our latest news online at independent.org. That's I N D Y P E N D E N T dot O R G. We've hosted the Monday uh, edition of the WBA Evening News for the past couple of years and recently moved to this new time slot, and it's great to be here with everyone. On Friday, Amazon warehouse workers and social and environmental justice activists around the world staged a series of coordinated protests, strikes, and actions to demand the online retailer respect workers' rights to participate in union activities, stop circumventing tax laws, and commit to higher environmental standards. The day of action called Make Amazon Pay coincided with Black Friday, one of Amazon's biggest sales events of the year and the start of its peak season when warehouse worker injuries are highest and workloads for warehouse workers and delivery drivers skyrocket. Protesters also rallied Friday outside of Jeff Bezos' $90 million Midtown mansion. Tomorrow, members of Athena, a coalition to deliver Democracy and in Amazon's mass surveillance, deportations, gentrification, monopoly, and worker abuse, uh, among other uh, malpractices, will protest at, again. Out, uh, they will be protesting as well outside of Bezos's home. The Alliance for a Greater New York, or Align, is one of the groups that will participate in tomorrow's rally. Joining us this evening to talk uh, all things Amazon and the growing demands that that company be held accountable is Maritza Silva-Farrell, Executive Director of Align. Maritza, welcome to the show. Hi, good evening. Thank you so much for having me on. You bet. So uh, Christmas shopping season or the holiday shopping season is underway and people are shopping online like never before because of the pandemic. And, of course, that's been a boon for Amazon. Can you talk about what what this holiday shopping season means for Amazon workers uh, at warehouses like the massive one that's out in Staten Island? So um, thank you again for the invitation. Um, And I just want to point out that, you know, even before the pandemic, health and safety have been an issue for Amazon workers um, across the the country and the globe. Um, Studies uh, have shown that injury rates have been increasing since 2016. It's just happening during this time. But um, clearly, uh, during the time where we have been all in quarantine, um, high rates and spikes during these weeks, uh, particularly during the prime days on Cyber Monday, we've seen that workers are uh, getting um, injured. Uh, Also, there are many injuries that have not been reported. Um, And uh, as you might have seen also on uh, press coverage, COVID-19 has only exacerbated the need for health and safety standards and really for workers to have a a voice in the workplace. Uh, The latest news here was about 19,000 workers who had tested positive for COVID. Um, And that essentially is what we know to be reported. So the impact at this particular time um, in this season where people are online shopping for workers is huge. Right. And, and, what is Amazon doing to address the situation? I mean, both the in- incredible uh, demands they place on their workers physically a- a- as well as uh, COVID. I mean, these warehouses are potentially uh, super spreader sites. Well, um, Amazon has been um, really making a lot, a lot of money. That's basically what they are doing at this moment. Um, and uh, we are having this action um, uh, outside of Bezos, just specifically calling Bezos uh, the profiteer of this pandemic. So that's what they're doing. They're just focusing on making um, millions and billions of dollars uh, instead of also focusing on protecting the health and safety of workers. Uh, has, this pandemic has also opened an opportunity for worker organizing. I would say there has been walkouts uh, from Minnesota to Germany uh, to you know New York City during this pandemic. Many of these workers have been uh, really brave and really spoke about the lack of protection that this corporation um, has uh, during this this critical time. Uh, And not only right now, but also in the past. Uh, So 
there is issues not only of uh, safety, but also there is no fair pay, uh, lack of protections uh, across the board. Um, and we're seeing people really uh, dying and, and the disease is being carried on um, by, by these uh, this workers because they, there is no protection. So uh, essentially, Amazon is doing nothing other than billions uh, and uh, you know, building up their pockets. Right. And and if I recall back in the spring there was a there was a, a walkout by some workers at that Staten Island a warehouse over uh, health concerns. Uh, are are you all in touch with them? Is it is there anything you're hearing from from over there at, at this time? Yes, I mean workers are speaking out on different places and uh you know we are in touch with workers who have feeling uh, the fear of also losing their jobs. Um, you know, during the spring, some of the workers who spoke uh, about the conditions in which they were working um, on at the time were also retaliated against. Um, so, yes, we are, uh, some of our members of our coalition have been hearing the stories of workers and um, the importance for them to be able to raise the concerns that they're facing. So here, particularly in New York, I can tell you that Knowing that um, corporations like Amazon aren't really following the health and safety uh, standards and guidelines in place, um, we as a coalition in New York City have been working on moving an, a, a legislation so that corporations like Amazon will be able to provide protections for workers in the workplace. The legislation is called New York Hero Act. Um, and we're hoping it will get passed. Um, if it passes uh, the, the Senate and the Assembly, we see that this, at the very least, will be able to provide some protections for workers who have been speaking out and at least been able to have that avenue um, coming up from the government, given that Amazon is not responding to the needs of the workers. Right. It, um, I, I know Align focuses more on labor issues. Can you also talk about the Athena uh, coalition, which you all are a part of, which uh, – tries to bring together groups around a, a whole range of concerns about Amazon that go even beyond its uh, mistreatment of workers. Absolutely. So Athena is a, a national coalition and Align is a member of this coalition that is focusing on not only the worker issues, but also how Amazon has uh, basically monopolized the industry as a whole um, thinking through, like, what are the best ways for um, our government federally to uh, put in place anti, um, antitrust laws? Um, and at the same time, you know, thinking through how do we protect our small businesses who uh, are losing here, uh, the, you know, in, in, the, in the context of how much Amazon really takes over the entire uh, sector. Um, similarly, I think this coalition is really uh, engaging deeply um, with all of us in, in, in their role, Amazon's role in the impact on climate, uh, the amount of waste, uh, the amount of pollution that they are creating in our environment is something that this coalition locally and nationally is engaging. We're seeing here in the Bronx, particularly, we're seeing so much of those big trucks coming in and out with so much expansion of warehouses in, in the Bronx. Uh, the offer of creating jobs for workers in those areas um, without having guarantee that the workers will be able to get good pay and health and safety is something that people in that community is concerned about. So I think Athena is a coalition that is focusing on all of the issues that Amazon is uh, creating and, more importantly, uh, ensuring that we uh, put forward uh, a demand that we have to keep our democracy and Amazon cannot just be, be above, above the law. Right, and they're, and they're also practically uh, tax cheats as well. They they pay almost no taxes on uh, fabulous profits. Absolutely. I mean, we saw it during the time, even when they wanted and their attempts to open up their headquarters in New York City. You know, they just basically wanted to get uh, money out of our government um, and subsidies and not paying taxes, avo uh, avoiding at all costs any sort of contributions to our states and cities. Um, it, it's something that the coalition is also definitely engaging and, and deeply working on um, from not only New York. I'm talking about places where in Virginia, we also know that there's a big expansion of Amazon there. So this is a large coalition that is focusing on, like, really holding our democracy values intact and ensuring that our communities are protected from corporations like this. Right. And going back to labor issues 
at Amazon. I mean, this seems like uh, I think it's the largest employer in the country now, even larger than Walmart. And this seems like a workforce that would really benefit from having a union. Of course, the company is fiercely anti-union. And in fact, uh, Vice News publicized a cache of, cache of leaked, leaked documents last week about how Amazon uses Pinkertons to spy on and disrupt any signs of union organizing within the company. Your thoughts on that? I mean, it's just appealing that Amazon spies on and retaliates against workers who are speaking about unsafe working conditions and are trying to just basically organize. Um, uh, you know, New York particularly, I want to say, and other places around the country, uh, it's uh, our union towns. And for us, supporting uh, unions is not only about that, it's also about supporting the ability for workers to have a voice in their workplace. Um, and so, like I said before, Amazon thinks that he, they are above the law, that they can just manip- monopolize the market, manipulate our communities, um, and on top of that, just not provide for workers who are working and providing the services to them. So it, it's just a awful what's happening to this corporation. Um, we believe uh, in the value that there is for collective agreements and collective voices to be heard um, as an organization, as, as also members of this coalition. Um, what Amazon is doing is shouldn't be overlooked by any government. Um, and we hope that they're going to be able to be held accountable uh, with new laws that will make sure that, you know, they, they basically follow the, follow the law and ensure that workers are protected as well as workers have a, a voice in the workplace. Right. And uh, one, one uh, hopeful note we saw last week was a group of uh, workers at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, announced that they were seeking to unionize, uh, which would be a huge step forward, especially in uh, in the Deep South. Um but I guess my final question, because we'll have to leave here in a minute. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about tomorrow's rally, where exactly uh, Bezos's mansion is and uh, what time it'll be happening? And uh, if people want to come out and join you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thank you. Um, so uh, in terms of the, the question that you were raising a better moment uh, on the workers organizing in Alabama and other places, I think, you know, the way we look at it uh, from our perspective is that it's really important to have laws in place, like the New York Hero Act, that would ensure that uh, workers will have a voice, um, at the very least, having government holding them accountable. Um, So that's one way of of ensuring that workers are protected. In terms of the action tomorrow, um, I think the event is going to be, uh, with many workers, you're going to be able to hear, if folks are able to join us tomorrow, workers will outside, this is on 23rd Street, on Fifth Avenue, on um, outside uh, Bezos' apartment, fancy apartment building. Uh, so we're going to be there. There is a Facebook page. You can follow us um, on alignny.org. We're going to be live streaming as well. Um, if you are not able to be in person, we will be social distance. Uh, we're going to be able to have our masks. So I invite everybody in the audience to join us. It is important that we stand up to corporations like this, and uh, please come. Okay. Uh, uh- We'll have to leave it there, but uh, Maritza Silva Farrell, thank you uh, from Maritza Silva Farrell from uh, Align. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on the Independent News Hour. Thank you so much for having me. Have a wonderful okay. evening. All right. Good luck with everything tomorrow. Thanks. Bye bye. Okay. All right. We'll be back with more after this short break.
All right, we're we're back. Uh, I believe we're back on the air here. Sorry uh, for the delays. Uh, that earlier song was "What's Going On" by Marvin Gaye. You're listening to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Uh, for our second segment, we're going to look at a, a group of New Yorkers that has been especially hard hit by the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, which is the unhoused. It's hard to shelter in place when you don't have a home to go to, and it's impossible to maintain six feet of social distance in the city's homeless shelters. Uh, earlier this summer, the city moved about 300 unhoused men into the Hotel Lucerne at 76th and Broadway on the affluent Upper West Side. Controversy ensued with some neighborhood residents denouncing the presence of their new neighbors, while other local residents came out in support of the men at the Lucerne. The de Blasio administration recently won a court ruling that would allow them to move the men to another site far away from the Upper West Side. That ruling is currently under appeal. And uh, joining us this evening uh, to talk for a few minutes about the situation is Shams LeBaron, one of the men who has been staying at the Lucerne. Shams, welcome welcome to the show. Hello, how you doing? Can you hear me well? Yep, can hear you, uh, hear you perfectly. Uh, yes, so, yes, yes. Um, I, I know we don't have a lot of time here, but uh, real quickly, <clears throat> can you tell us about yourself and what was going on in your life before you uh, moved into the Hotel Lucerne? Yes, sir. Well, okay. I mean, uh, my mother and father were uh, heroin addicts from the late 60s and 70s. I'm a product of the foster care system who was put in foster care at the age of two. I grew up there um, from home to home at some point, and then in a stable home, you know, after another point, but when I was five years old, and I came at a time when we, uh, when the influx, when the development of hip hop culture first came into play, and I was a product of that. I hope to develop hip hop culture. It wasn't called hip hop back then, but uh, so I have a rich history in that aspect. But at the same time, I have that unique position of having been in foster care. At a certain point, 10 years old, 12 years old, is when I started experiencing homelessness. I was uh, um, placed in a group home, and because of the conditions in the group home, I chose to stay more in the streets than in the group home. And that's when I learned how to ride the trains and go different places to uh to, you know, to be safe and stuff like that. So, you know, I have a long history of dealing with homelessness and being in the streets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, not everything is gloom and doom. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, a lot of great things that I've I've experienced and that I've actually accomplished in life. Um, I've had houses, I've had condos and townhouses, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not all homelessness. But as a single adult, uh, trying to make my way now, I ended up in the shelter system as I tried to seek help for substance abuse disorder, which my substance use was attributed to my alcoholism and for mental illness. So I came here and, and got into the shelter specifically to get those services. And uh, so that's why I'm here right now. Right. And with the pandemic going on and, and everything else, uh, what has it meant for you and the other men to be able to stay at the Lucerne? Well, before the pandemic or, or when the pandemic first hit, we were in the congregate shelters. And the congregate shelters were so dangerous. It was like, you know, um, it was a lot of fear. It was a lot of anxiety. If you are a person that are experiencing or, or dealing with substance use disorder or mental illness, all of that it was exasperated, it was increased because of the stress and the anxiety associated, associated with, um, you know, just that fear that if you get sick, you might die. And with everything that came on in the news, it, and, you know, it was just, it was scary. The other side of that is that, the congregate shelters that we come from, we're not equipped to actually deal with this pandemic. So if you study the, the statistics, it shows that 63% or I believe it's 63% of the, 
of the homeless population of those that were in congregate shelters, their mortality rate, death rate, was 63% higher than the overall population in New York at the height of the pandemic. So we were 63% more likely to die from, the, from, the, from this uh, disease, this virus, than people all through the city when they were dying like, like wholesale. So that just shows you the danger that existed in these congregate shelters. And so just imagine the fear accompanied with that. And that's what we had to undergo, and, 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 and that's where we were at when the uh, pandemic first came into existence. We didn't have, um, you know, they said masks, but masks wasn't necessary, so that wasn't even an issue. But we didn't even have things like uh, sanitizer. We didn't have soap, and these were the basic things that they did say would protect you. We didn't have that. We were right. in dorm-style settings that it – Totally, there's no way of social distancing. You know, at one point, they kept throwing us into the streets, which unfortunately would either allow us to get the virus or to transfer the virus at a time when they told everybody else to stay indoors. We didn't have no indoors to go to because their policy was to throw them in the streets, you know, after a certain time. So we had to fight to be able to stay indoors and hopefully try to be protected. And that didn't work because it didn't take long before the virus spread throughout the shelter. And I myself contracted the virus and almost died as a result of, 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 mm. of the virus. And, and what can you talk uh, just for a minute about the reception you've received uh, on the Upper West Side? Uh, some of your new neighbors uh, uh, have, have been very critical of um the move of, of people to the Lucerne and others have really rallied to your support. Well, on one hand, you know, before we came, you got to remember that the, the real, the ball was dropped by the city of New York. DHS placed us here without notifying the community across the board. They gave not only the community about three, three days notice, not only the residents of the, of uh, project renewal shelters, three days notice, but they also gave the service provider, the people that is overseeing us, they gave them three days notice. They didn't alert anybody as to the, this move and give anything, anybody a chance to question it, to point out their views or concerns or whatever the case is. They just said, y'all moving. And that caused a negative backlash because people, you know, the word from DHS was we're dropping 283 people dealing with substance abuse and mental illness into your community. Naturally, there was going to be a backlash. I was their biggest advocate. I said something's not is going to happen and it's not going to be good for the community. It's not going to be good for us. And everything I said happened just as I said it would happen. Mm. Because DHS tries to sneak people into communities and drop them in, what happens is when the community starts to see, you know, new faces and different things that may be not uh, 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 the way the community is, whether it's quality of life or whatever, it's going to be a problem. But this is not our fault. We go where they tell us to go. This is right. DHS fault because had they done their due diligence, they would have engaged the community. What concerns do you have? Okay, let's see how we could mitigate those concerns. You know, what do you have in your community that could assist us in making this transition better? It's only temporary, and it's under the auspices of this COVID pandemic, but we don't want to negatively affect you. We respect your community. They didn't do right, nothing. Right. And, and we, we have to go here in one minute. So um, – uh, you know, I understand the, the case is uh, currently on appeal, and, and we'll see how see how that goes. But uh, if y'all do have to move uh, out of the Lucerne to uh, another destination, uh, uh, real quick, can you talk about how that would uh, impact you all and, and you know, why you would rather stay at the Lucerne? Well, we'd rather stay because uniquely to this experience is that although the initial uh, movement had a negative backlash and things weren't in place and et cetera, et cetera. 
we stepped to the occasion. You know, first thing I did as an advocate for my, my, my fellow residents and, and the community was I convinced Project Renewal to bring in their recovery center, which is the outpatient group, to service us. I also, and they stepped up and brought in occupational therapy, recreational program, different things, and made use of the uh, recreational space. Other organizations stepped up, like Open Hearts Initiative, which was already just jumping. They didn't step in because I said it. They did that on their own. The same with started Riverside, which provided 50 jobs for us. So we did a lot of things that the, the problem is that when we go to a new to this new community they're trying to send us to, none of that exists. So they're right. going to try to reproduce it. But why would you break something? Why would you try to change something that's not broke? Why would you try to fix something that's not broke? And and that was the biggest concern. And the, and I'm like with the information that's coming to me now, those services are not going to be reproduced there. They're going to try as best they could, but it's not on the same level because they're trying to do it. And at the end of the day, everything that we've done here is community-based, is project renewal-based, and it's uh, 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 resident-based. We're all in this together. Right. Oh, uh, we're we're going to have to leave it there, but that's really great to hear that, that you all have uh, you know found a – a place in that community, and and we w- wish you all the best with being able to stay there. Uh, uh, Shams LeBaron, thank you so much for joining us this evening on uh, WBAI. Can I say one last thing. Uh, we we really we like fifteen seconds, and then we have to move on. All right, all right, no problem. Did, was there that one, one one last thing you wanted to say? I just wanted to say that whatever happens, I want everybody to continue to support us. This is bigger than just a Lucerne. You know, we're trying to deal with things that address the homeless issues throughout the city and throughout the country. So just keep supporting us because it's not over. We are just starting. Okay, that uh, that's a great note to end on. Uh, thank you again, uh, Shams, for uh, joining us on uh, 99.5 FM. All righty, and when we, we'll come back after a short break and we'll uh, talk with a healthcare worker whose Brooklyn hospital is on the verge of being closed during the middle of the pandemic. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five What a way to make a living That was Dolly Parton singing nine to five You're listening to the Independent News Hour on 99.5 FM I'm your, your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Uh, Before we continue on with our next segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so on this Giving Tuesday to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give number to WBAI.org. Again, that phone number is 516-620-3602. You can make a one-time donation or, better yet, sign up as a WBAI buddy for $10 per month or more and help keep WBAI and shows like this on the air. So uh, with our, our next segment, uh, we're going to uh, return to the, the pandemic with COVID-19 infection numbers climbing here in New York City and across the state. It's looking like we'll need every hospital bed that we can find this winter yet. In East Flatbush, Brooklyn, the Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center is slated to be closed at the end of this month. Founded in 1925, Kingsbrook is a public safety net hospital that was packed with COVID patients last spring. So what's going on here? How is this possible? Well, this evening, we're joined by Joanne Brown, one of the healthcare workers at Kingsbrook, who is trying to rally support for keeping the hospital open, at least through the pandemic. Joanne, thanks for uh, joining us uh, this evening on uh, the Independent News Hour. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back to talk about the closure of Kingsbrook Jewish Medical, Medical Center. You bet. Uh, so first of all, uh, uh, can you uh, walk us through the current situation at Kingsbrook as far as 
uh, what has already been uh, uh, dismantled and what is uh, what else is scheduled to happen uh, by the end of this month uh, when the when the hospital is supposed to close? Yes. Yeah, so as we know, the, the hospital is scheduled to close by uh, December 31st of this year. Um, on August 13th, we uh, closed one of the medical surgical units, which is about 41 beds. So right now we're operating with about 122 medical surgical beds. Those are the beds that are available to care for COVID-19 patients. Um, as we're, uh, they are still accepting admissions. Um, we do have about 80% capacity of our medical surgical unit right now. That uh, the census today was about 97 patients on those on those units. Um, we are caring for COVID patients. Uh, as we begin to ramp down and move towards the closure, um, the staff is starting to transition into their new jobs. Um, they are beginning to train for their new jobs. So we are seeing more and more agency nurses. These are nurses that are working in, by contract. Right now, the number is about 30% agency nurses to 70% staff. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to see that um, that number of agency nurses is going to increase probably closer to 50%. Um, so the, with regards to whether or not this is going to move forward, um, yes, it's still continuing to move forward. And the big uh, elephant in the room is regarding Governor Cuomo's announcement yesterday that he is requiring all hospitals to plan to add 50% capacity, just like we did in the spring. Uh, as we know, the state is our, the architect in orchestrating the closure of these acute care beds at Kingsburg Jewish Medical Center. Uh, so we're very curious to see if they're going to continue to quietly close this hospital while they ask all the other hospitals to increase capacity by 50 percent. Yeah, actually, we uh, we have a clip here from Governor Cuomo's press conference yesterday uh, that we're going to play in a moment in which he speaks about how the state is preparing as the number of COVID-19 infections uh, spread across New York. Let's see if we have that uh, queued up now. So we will have a limited ability to bring resources from upstate to downstate like we did in the spring or from downstate to upstate because literally every region is dealing with a hospital issue now. And you look at those curves, uh, they're all going up at an alarming rate. So uh, in the new Battlefield, hospital capacity is the top concern. You heard that. In the new battlefield, hospital capacity is the top concern. Joanne Brown, your reaction? Uh, 100%. And with regards to Kingsbrook, hospital capacity has to be matched with staffing, right? So as we continue to transition staff away from uh, being, you know, core members of Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center, to our sister, uh, our system um, hospitals, you know, we will continue to add agency nurses if it's possible. Um, you know, as we hear from the from the governor, um, our hospitals upstate are are under a load that we did not see in the spring. So this is a, a whole new um, a whole new twist to the story of closing a safety net hospital in Brooklyn that we're not going to have upstate doctors and nurses and uh, staff to come and bail us out. Um, so we need every available bed and that 122 bed is important right now. And if we can get back to 41 that we lost on August 13th, we'll be even greater uh, participating in fighting COVID in East Flatbush, which was the hardest hit in all of the five boroughs outside of Queens. Right. And when we're talking about beds, uh, that, that can sound like a, like a dry statistic, but that, that could be someone's life in a, in a, few more weeks or you know throughout the winter that's at stake depending whether those beds are there or not uh, so real quick can you just describe a little bit more who comes to kingsbrook who uses the hospital right so kingsbrook is located um in east Flappish and on the border of crown heights and um Mostly, uh, it's of West Indian and Caribbean descent. Um, our patients are over 50. They have multiple comorbidities like heart disease, high blood pressure, uh, diabetes. And as we know, those particular and chronic heart disease and those particular comorbidities make COVID even more deadly. Um, and 
mostly it has acted like a safety now hospital and many of our patients are people who have been coming to this hospital for decades. They rely on it. Uh, in addition, we have a nursing home that is part of the campus. And when our nursing home residents get sick, they're transferred to Kingsbrook, which is right across, literally across the street. And their family members rely on the fact that they stay in the neighborhood. Um, so it is a safety net and a community hospital and has been serving, you know, those those people for decades and they really rely on it. And when we tell the community that the hospital is closing, they are they are shocked and they cannot believe that they are losing this resource. Right. Now, we covered the uh, looming uh, closure of your hospital in the November print edition of The Independent. And, uh, you know, there, there's some uh, there's some uh, funky angles to this story and which revolve around why on earth this is uh, happening. Uh, can you uh, walk our listeners a little bit through uh, the real estate connection here and uh, uh, the, a prominent developer who's uh, been a longtime campaign donor to Governor Cuomo, I understand, is uh, right in the thick of all this. Right. So before um, the beginning of the pandemic, uh, affordable housing has always been um, very important to this part of central Brooklyn. Both the assembly member and the senator who um, are in the district have worked very hard in the state Senate to get affordable housing. So when the plan came for one Brooklyn Health to be consult to be emerged and for part of the Kingsbrook campus to become affordable housing, it was very well received. However, um, there is a real estate developer that is on the board that is directing, um, uh, not directing the uh, development of the property uh, for affordable housing, but he does exist on the board and does have real estate ties. We're not 100% sure if that housing is going to be affordable to the percentage of the uh, area mean income that we need, that uh, the people of the community want and fought for. Uh, we hope that it will be part of the schedule, which will be, you know, somewhere between 50% of the um, area mean income. But um, only time will tell. It, it really is about how much it's going to cost the developer to build those buildings and for him what what he, she, and these companies can get out of the, out of the process. So um, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with, with, those, with those buildings that are going to be built and who they're going to serve. Right. And, and just so we're not being cryptic here, the, uh, the real estate developer's name is a billionaire named uh, Alexander Roft, uh, who originally made a, a fortune, I believe, in uh, Ukrainian fertilizer um, and came to America and has given uh, more than $350,000 in campaign donations uh, between himself and his wife to Cuomo since 2010. Um, it, it does leave you wondering if he's... Uh, you know, going to get something in return for all his uh, generous support for the governor over the years. Well, he is on the board of directors of One Brooklyn Health System. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, again, it remains to be seen. Um, the, the closure of the hospital is part of an ongoing um, dismantling of safety net hospitals in Brooklyn. We've lost four since 2003, two of those hospitals in black and brown neighborhoods. Those are hundreds of beds that could have served COVID patients. But for, for the New York State Health Department to say that um, those hospitals were never at capacity and so we need to start whittling away at them, it just goes to show you when we come to a situation like a pandemic and we need 100% capacity, having a hospital that only exists at 65% capacity should be the standard. So between the real estate, the affordable housing, and then whittling away at safety net hospitals, Medicare, Medicaid beds, and hospital capacity. It's just it's just a, a perfect storm that has blown up in everyone's faces here. Right. And uh, so what, what are you all doing at this point uh, to try to stop the closure from happening, to try to get it at least uh, postponed until the an end of the pandemic? So we've been very active with the local community boards. Community Board 17 um, has been very active. Community Board 14, Human Services Committee, held a meeting letting their board members in the community know um, we've been flyering in the neighborhood, letting the community know um, the independent, both print and radio has helped us. We've had several other media outlets um, let, you know, publicize the closure. And I think now that we've moved past the election, uh, we can really focus on 
And, and if we can leverage the fact that there is a hypocrisy going on right now, that the state is closing a hospital while they ask every other hospital to increase their capacity by 50%, all we can do is let the community know and get the community to get the elected officials to understand this is not the right time. We are in a public health emergency. Right. Uh, and, and we just have a, a, another minute or so here. Uh, just switching away a little bit from the situation at, at your hospital, uh, nurses and healthcare workers across the country are being overwhelmed with uh, with COVID patients as the pandemic uh, continues to spread, and and many of these people are ending up in the hospital because you know because of choices they made, including you know traveling on over the Thanksgiving uh, weekend. Uh, I guess how how is people's morale doing in, in facing a, a second winter of of uh, risking your lives to save people, and not only as individual make, individuals make poor choices sometimes, but obviously as our government makes uh, all kinds of uh, terrible uh, decisions, and, and you all are on the front lines and have to bear the brunt of that. Uh, we we are all incredibly stressed out um, by the fact that there is inevitably a second wave that is coming towards us. Right. Uh, so all the health care workers, all the nurses, I mean, everyone um, has been emotionally drained by the events of the spring. And to think that this is going to happen again just leaves you listless. Um, and then for us, particularly in our facility that is closing and we are in such limbo, makes it even uh, more stressful. Um, and then having to intersect with um, agency nurses while they are wonderful. They require a lot of orientating, especially in the beginning. So as more staff leaves and more agency people come in, that's more pressure on the staff who has stayed to orient and make sure that the, the ship is running properly. So we are, particularly in Kingsbrook, very stressed out. And I would say in New York City, uh, everyone is really just on edge. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But Joanne Brown from Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center, thank you uh, for joining us once again uh, on WBAI. Uh, thank you, John. Thanks for having me back again. You bet. And we thank you for, for your service and the courage of you and all the other healthcare workers. And, of course, encourage all our listeners to wear their masks and be uh, safe and be careful and you know, save your own life and uh, protect others, including uh, our healthcare workers. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, and uh, uh, wrap up our show tonight. Many thanks to Amba Gagarian, Sue Brisk, and Kenneth Lopez for their help with tonight's show. And please remember to give generously on Giving Tuesday today to WBAI. Once again, you can uh, give by calling 516-620-3602 or go straight to give number two WBAI. We'll be back same time next week. Mm-hmm.